0: This following piece is a bit from a paper that I wrote in my first semester in graduate school. The longer that I'm in this thing, the longer that I am training in anthropology and the more that I'm training in ethnography um, in a sort of systematized way, the more I truly do long for a transparency and for a, the storytelling that ignited this interest in the first place. I think that there is not only behind the paywall but behind our own perhaps embarrassment or our own vision of how we're supposed to be unfolding as scholars um, a, um, a little sensitivity about sharing our work. And as the years are going by in this process it is becoming far more urgent to me that we share this transparency and we share the vulnerability and we share The curiosity that brought us to do what it is that we're doing. Ethnography is composed of the most extraordinary, tangential, serendipitous frisions of existence. They're fictions assembled out of our truths in some capacity. And so I feel like at this point, it's important for my politic that I show some of these things. Again, often this is hidden behind a paywall. Often this is hidden behind embarrassment. Often this is hidden behind later works that then this is, you find, you know, some kind of critical um, vulnerability in your work. But I am all about being thoroughly imperfect at this point. And that is the site in which generation and curiosity has been able to thrive in my life. So I'd like to just share a little bit about this this piece and what I was working with at the time. What makes this work sort of pertinent, I think, for a more casual pop-anth discussion, or an invitation, is that I was working with affect at the time. And affect is infamously difficult to pin down, but especially when you're then pairing it with the ethnographic vignette in some way, meaning a personal story, meaning a story that you're using to typify the theory. And so this is, uh, you know, a way of scrambling at that by using something nebulous, affect, which could be framed as something like... uh, This definition by Wikipedia, our illustrious guide, quote, "...affect theory is a theory that seeks to organize affects, sometimes used interchangeably with emotions, often not in anthropology, or subjective experienced feelings into discrete categories and to typify their physiological, social, interpersonal, internalized manifestations." Each affect theory is defined in different ways depending on the discipline, and nearly everything that's written in this Wikipedia entry is being pushed back on in anthropology. So, in some way, affect theory is um, (laughs) trying to engage with the indefinable, these, you know, indescribable, possibly nascent, possibly, uh, you know, circulated, possibly impressed feelings that we have before cognition, maybe possibly before we can share um, with words and categorize them into an emotion. So when that is then paired with something like an event that happens in your life that's really meaningful, you get some, some odd work here, and that's what I'm wanting to share. I um, am engaging in this piece with a theorist, who wrote a, uh, an article, um, Julie Soleil Archambault, and she wrote this article in 2016 called Taking Love Seriously in Human-Plant Relations in Mozambique Toward an Anthropology of Affective Encounters, Unquote. And um, I hope that you enjoy this incredible love affair that I still juicily am benefiting from. I recall the tables draped in sheets and plastic, displaying neat rows of a person's life. There was a sense of pause and a sense of reverence, a tangy melancholy that wafted through the early summer house, strangers quietly handling old shoes, standing in doorways while they calculated the deal. However, This very type of event is itself teeming with tensions. The estate sale is an exchange between human ghosts and those who consume their remains. We weren't there because we had a specific need. We didn't come shopping with a grocery list. Instead, many of us had come to experience the curious husk of a home that was left in the wake of departure. Undergirding the quietude in the house was a subtle, hungry buzz that I felt on the coating of my bones, one that I assume was a product of the collective attempt to subvert the transactional nature of our visit. As I walked through her kitchen and sifted through spoons, wondered what was behind her locked bedroom door, and considered buying a soap dish the appetite for objects began to sour. There was something particularly ravenous about this space. This house was still particularly alive. Having been invited by a friend, I didn't know anything about the background of the sale, regarding who the previous owner was, where they were now, or who organized the event. What I did know, however was that the style of the sale was implicitly intimate. There was a marked care in how objects were clustered on tables, polished and priced. Perhaps it was because of the tenderness of her home being vividly laid out, parts even in situ, but the entire affair became faintly grotesque under these conditions. The contrast of the fun hunt for stuff and the assemblage of a long life felt made this feel somewhat like carry-on. Disturbed by this voyeur, vulturistic realization, I decided to wait outside for my friend and breathe in the morning sun. The objectification of these objects was just too much. I headed through the garage to leave. Suddenly... My heart was abloom. As if a fat, hot peony filled my entire chest, pressed into my collarbone, petals welling up and peeling off into the hollows of my body, I was utterly enchanted. I felt as if I had caught the eye of the One I had been seeking for lifetimes, the kind of perfect soulmate you scoff at finding while public, but reach out for in dreams, Yet, there they were, standing in the corner of the garage. He was? She was? It was. Set up in the opened garage, bathed in the morning light, the color of pale tea, was a vintage, countermarch loom. It stood six feet tall, its cotton ropes loosely knotted to the apron bar. The rusted handles glistened like puffy eyes, the beater silently hanging from the frame in tobacco-colored anticipation. I stood in the doorway wrapped, unblinkingly studying each angle and nut on its stunning body. I had been working with textile since I was a child, becoming ever more seduced into process. Draping moved to sewing, which moved to dyeing fabric, which moved to dyeing wool, which moved to knitting, which moved to spinning on a drop spindle, which moved to spinning wheels, which moved to me owning copious amounts of yarn untethered, which moved me to this pristine moment of reckoning. The presence of this loom encompassed every one of these strivings, every fragment of seeking that I had been working out through cloth. This was the manifestation of yearning, of what I was attempting to act on, distilled into a stately body of possibility. There, with the rest of the public entirely uninterested, I fell in love for the first time. Julie Soleil Archimbald's research concerning human-plant relationships in Mozambique engages a particularly overlooked facet of relationality between, quote, us and the object, love. When positioning her perspective in regard to how we situate the affect in these relationships, she chooses a method where the, quote, study of affective encounters is concerned with the product of human engagement, with this autonomous force, Through this position, we can both recognize the object as a participant in how affect is shaped and motivates human relationships, with the material and one another, without needing to grapple with the notion of an object's own consciousness. When this is extended to an affective experience of love between human and non-human entities, we are now concerned with a highly dynamic and contextual bond that decentralizes human primacy as the activating force. In this type of love, my type of love, we are not reckoning with the object as sight of nostalgia or recollection that is tied to memories housed in the material or as a fetish of the index. We're not reckoning with a love that is human-directed, projected and incised onto the bodies of non-human beings. We're not reckoning with a love that is symbolic only. Instead, the object is an active participant in growing an effective and emotional love that is relational, that is fresh, that is participatory it is an equal member in some way and in the case of the loom in the as the initiating member of the deeply emotional response that is untethered to an existing memory i was activated by the affect of the loom i was made animate in a way that i wouldn't be without it Although it seems paradoxical that something without a salient quote-unquote consciousness could be the activating member, there is something important about the loom as a tool that marks this exchange. As opposed to instances where objects are sites of nostalgia or fetishism, like object, objective sexualities, the loom offers me potentiality to activate the creative self it offers a possibility of creating something new through relationality and discovery with the loom. It offers me the possibility to make something with it and together combined create something unknown before. The of function that is inherent in the loom as tool provides me a future with this object, not just a sentimentality or inert sexuality. May I add, something I have never been truly confident in, in human relationships. It is within this latent potential for activation that is situated in the object that I easily trace the similarity between engaging a love affair with the loom to tending plants as lovers. Archambault writes, quote, Plants inspire deeply romantic commentaries that speak of authenticity and attachment. In fact, gardeners articulate their engagement with plants as guided by an overriding principle, the love of plants. They also construct their human-plant relations as markedly different from their interpersonal lives. However, in the case of my loom, I would underscore the potential of the object to both activate the emotional aspects of a romantic relationship that felt deeply close and intimate, while simultaneously embodying the potential as tool and inheritance to connect me to other non-traditional relationships of love beyond romance among humans. Part of this has to do with how the object selectively seduces the recipient and why they were able to feel the affective power of the object itself. Archinbald's observation that, quote, affect, in other words, may move different people differently, unquote, is particularly salient when considering the occasion of the estate sale. While most people had been deeply invested in pricing shoelaces and assessing Tupperware, virtually no one felt an interest in the loom. When I shook off my star eyed stare from the doorway hypnotism, I scrambled to find the manager of the sale to inquire about purchasing this loom. I was stunned when he informed me that no one had shown any interest whatsoever. I couldn't comprehend this apathetic response when I was boiling with a salivating fever just seeing it. To make more absurd in love-drunk logic, my visceral urgency to own or be near or have this loom was compounded by the fact that I didn't even know how to weave yet. This example of having the object affect me and not others has an inherent implication. If not them, why me? It's in this moment of consideration that the object is expanded beyond its relationality as a direct lover and leads me to envisage two new channels of imagined worlds that I hadn't initially read or felt through the object. First, is the previous owner. While I wanted to buy the $350 loom on the spot, my early twenties finances did not allow this. The kindly son of the owner allowed me to pay in installments. Because of the prolonged contact overpayment, I had an opportunity to speak with him over a matter of weeks regarding his mother. He described her with a reverence and a quiet grief, sharing that she had entered into an assisted living facility. It's still unclear why. I never had a chance to meet her. He recalled her lifelong practice of home textile works and how it was a centralized hub for her sociality after retirement. These conversations took place in her garage, surrounded by the evidence of her life. Dry, cardboard boxes full of persimmon-colored acrylic yarn, bins of sleek shuttles burnished with use, and stacks of scrapbooks full of wool samples labeled in her elegant scrawl. It was clear by her care and the details of her projects, that these objects were incredibly meaningful to her and that she had been engaged in a passionate love affair with the loom herself. I identified with that as a person who had never met her. In the presence of her ephemera, a series of impasses were cobbled together to connect seemingly disparate people. The world of textile making was entirely illegible by her son, and the world of his mother was entirely illegible to me. However, the objects somehow brought together these disparate worlds through a translation that conveyed a mutual sense of love. For me, it was of a desire to learn and revere the craft as placed in the objects she tended to. For him, it was in the confidence that I would care for what his mother loved, in a way beyond his ability, but in step with his sentiment. This mutual intelligibility bred a triangulated affection that both encapsulated people remembered and the objects present. I purchased an object, but earned an inheritance of love. The second channel to imagined worlds piggyback on the first in that the objects have a lineage attached to them. They are not only part in a set of tools associated with a method outside of place, but are part of a concrete community in place before I encountered them. By tracing the loom back, I was able to reconnect it to the Tri-Community Weaving group, an adult education school that held classes in the textile arts for over 50 years. Through this connection, I began taking classes with the community who knew and loved Jan, who was the woman who owned the loom, her friends. Fueled to learn how to use the object to fulfill my own romantic love with the loom, I began to encounter a previously unimaginable world of highly contextualized and deeply nourishing loves in this community, I encountered Jan through the people who attended to her, who simultaneously forged fresh bonds with me that echoed with an exquisite diversity of love, sisterly, motherly, grandmotherly, mentorly, creatively, spiritually, empathetically, psychically, intellectually, historically, and far more. The inertia of the object as both a tool and as a member offered me an opportunity to nourish human relationships that I would never have come across formally. If contingent on normative confines of space, quote, culture, unquote, generational habit and exposure, it would have been exceedingly rare that I would have met any of these retired, widowed women who lead their lives in well-defined troughs of habit within a 15-mile radius of the homes they've lived in for the past forty-plus years. Beyond measure, my dearest and most beloved companion in the class was Janice, the eighty-plus-year-old teacher with flashing fresh eyes and hands laden with silver rings. The depth of our friendship blossomed into a type of love I had never dreamed imaginable. Not only did she generously share her lifetime of textile insight with me, but the tenacious wisdom of her life through an affable, light joy. The capacity to abstract my expectation of love roles matured in this setting. Friends could feel like giggly girlfriends in one moment and provide seasoned advice produced from a lifetime of hardship in another. The object as an effective agent for encounter presents a host of possibilities and intersections. When considering love in non-human and non-standard ways, the object features as a central player in the ways that we exchange and vision and feel diverse loves. In the case of a loom, its simultaneous capacity to induce an emotive response in those who can pick up on the affect is mirrored in its capacity to motivate, connect, and trace back to potential lovers who share a common love for the potential of the loom. In this way, we may consider the arbitrary limits of how we may imagine inanimate objects as an agent of emotional influence upon the lives of humans and the implications that carry for the daily lives among our things.